All right, so we'll get started. So we're at the point in the, you know, about halfway through the, the, the little book. And the first half was foundations, inspiration, revelation, human authorship. And now we're bleeding over into the sections on inerrancy, authority, interpretation of scripture. So getting to the more applicability, um, if you will, portion of the series. But sort of smack dab in the middle of that transition, we have to talk about the canon of scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, the way that they are, and how we got to that point. And to be honest, there's a lot that still is unknown about the actual formation. I mean, you know, many times, you know, when I was thinking about the canon of scripture, you think about the old councils, you think about people sitting down, or even how we decide things in today's world, you know, around the table with some coffee, and everyone's like, okay, Genesis, yay, nay, you know, Exodus, yay, nay, you know, in discussion. That's not quite the way it happened. It, it, it was formed over centuries from authoritative works as it was utilized in the common teachings of the day. And the Old Testament and the New Testament were both formed a little different. But let's take a step back first and, and talk about what does the word canon mean. Does anyone actually know what the original word for canon was or how it was used in the Greek? It was used, um, it was a Greek word that was originally used for reed. And reed was a, was a standard of measurement. And so it was translated into... Um, the standard of the scripture, but it's primarily used in the New Testament. Um, so in Galatians 6.16, for example, if you want to look that up, I'll read it. But it says in, in Galatians 6.16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the, uh, the uh, Israel of God. So the rule in view here is the new creation in Christ. So it started out being used as a standard, a measurement, the, the, the measurement, the standard here is that new creation in Christ. But during the early centuries, it evolved to be described the rule of faith. And then it became the New Testament as the, in the New Testament as the rule of faith and life by which the church was governed. And so over time, the word canon was then used to describe the body of scripture um, as we know it. And, and we have to split our discussion really into the canon of the Old Testament and the canon of the New Testament because they each have their own nuances. Um, frankly, the Old Testament canon, in some ways, is easier and a more clear issue, primarily because Christ, in multiple occasions, referred to the Old Testament scriptures and accepted the Old Testament scriptures as they were, uh, as we know it. Now... He was using or had at his disposal the Hebrew Bible, which is a little bit differently ordered than our scriptures, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But by and large, Christ accepted the Old Testament as we know it. So from that perspective, the Old Testament canon is a little easier. The New Testament one may have uh, the, the wrinkles that, that we hear and, and talk about um, in, um, in the, uh, the, the modern debates about what actually belongs in the scriptures and what doesn't. Now, obviously, I think... We have to set the stage by saying the scripture is authoritative, that we believe it in the order that we have it from Genesis to Revelation, 
that it is self-authenticating. We've talked about that in previous lessons, that over time it's self-authenticating. And scriptures refer to other scriptures as truth and as an um, authoritative document. And we've talked about different sections in the scripture where they refer to them. So I think with those foundational things, then we can sort of dive into how the scriptures were created. I'm going to start with the Old Testament. So we've got three verses that I want, or three sections that I want to read. Uh, someone pull up Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. So that's one. Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Deuteronomy 3, or excuse me, 31, 9 through 13. And then Joshua 1, 7 through 9. And I'll get my phone for the external Bible as well. So... What I'm setting the stage here for is in the Old Testament, we have the transition of rule from Moses to Joshua. And that's really important in the context of the Old Testament canon because we talk about what was given to the Israelites and the transition and the authority that that had over their lives and then the transition of rule from Moses to Joshua. So let's start with Exodus 24, whoever has that. Three through eight. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Okay, so in here we have the law given to the people, the book of the covenant. This was an authoritative body given to the people uh, here in this section of Exodus. And as a side note, I've always wondered what it would be like to actually see some of these scenes in the Old Testament played out. Like, in reality, like, like Moses throwing the blood on the altar and then throwing it on the people. Like, it, unbelievable, like, graphic description in the scriptures of how these things happened. I mean, it was literally a slaughterhouse in the Old Testament. I mean, killing animals. I mean, Ryan was talking about the, the Exodus series. Like, it just... The, the way that these, these priests must have felt like day in, like with all these sacrifices and blood, is just unbelievable. Thankfully, we don't have to do that anymore because of Christ's death and resurrection. But, so in, the, in these scriptures, that's the first, the, the first body of text that is important. We have the book of the covenant where he read it in the hearing of the people and said, the Lord has spoken, we'll do this, we'll be obedient. Okay, that's, that's authoritative. So this is the first piece that we need to think about in the Old Testament can. Now, let's transition to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31, 9 through 13. I got that. All right. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord into all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, 
When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known, not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So this is nearing the end of Moses' life, and this is at the point where he's instructing and the instructions from God of what to do with this law. So clearly, they have this authoritative body of scrolls of Scripture that was given to them, the Book of the Covenant. They're creating the Ark. They are um, it's supposed to adhere to it. They're supposed to abide by it. They're supposed to teach it. Um, they're supposed to uh, follow... Um, this law, this body, this this text, and it's their authoritative scripture. So finally, let's hear Joshua 1, 7-9, as um, the Israelites are given a new leader. So who has Joshua 1, 7-9? Got it. Thank you. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you... Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Thanks, Sheldon. Okay. What's the common thread between those three bodies of Scripture? Or the, 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 these bodies of Scripture? What's the common thread there? It's kind of said in each and every one of them. God will be with you. God will be with you. But what about the body of text? What are they supposed to do with it? The book of the law. The book of the law. They're supposed to follow it. They're supposed to adhere to it. They're supposed to right on their hearts, so to speak. So not only did God give to the Israelites during that time of history a new leader in Joshua, but he gave them this book of the covenant, this book of the law. And in in Deuteronomy 31, 26, it was instructed that this book in its written form, probably scrolls, were to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant and throughout the Old Testament, throughout our scriptures, the Old Testament, we have a record of the people's obedience or disobedience to the book of the covenant. So Sinclair Ferguson wrapped it up really nicely in his book, uh, From the Mouth of God. I would recommend that. It's a really great text. It supplements this little book really nicely. And it talks about from the beginning of um, uh, formation of Scripture, uh, inerrancy, authenticity, all the things we're talking about on a really deep level, and then goes into an application component. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to read it? So it's a really, really good book. But in his book, on the section on the canon, he writes, it was to be their Bible. As they responded in faith and obedience, they lived in God's blessing. If they rebelled in unbelief and disobedience, they placed their lives outside of the sphere of the covenant blessing and were exposed to God's judgment curse. The immense authority of God's written word was therefore symbolized by the fact that it was to be placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. Together, they represent the presence of God among his people, the Ark, and the pleasure of God for his people, the book. 
So this Old Testament, the Book of the Covenant, and what we see unfolding from uh, the beginnings of Genesis to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi is the story of how God's people were shaped by their faithfulness or their faithlessness to the covenant, um, uh, to this covenant word. And that's the content of the Old Testament. Um, so now we're going to start talking about the division of the Old Testament. Um, the prophets, uh, like Joshua Judges, um, well, actually, that's how the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew scriptures uh, actually loop those in there. But the prophets, the next set of writings after Genesis, Exodus, um, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, after those first five books, they start expanding and explaining what's contained within the book of the law. And so Ferguson, again, says the key to interpreting the prophets' writings is understanding their ministries in the light of God's covenant with his people, that the prophets were sent to warn people that God would keep his written covenant word, even if it means that judgment's going to fall upon them. So now let's start breaking up the division. So we have this understanding of the book of the law, the book of the covenant given to the people, and that was in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Okay. So we talked early on in this class that the revelation of God is progressive over time to people. And that's actually evident in the development of the Old Testament. So we have the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. Does anyone know what it's often referred to as? Um, some other word that you could refer to the first five books? The Torah. The Torah. So this is often referred to as the, the books of Moses, the five books, the, the Torah. So that's the first five books. Then we have the prophets. So we kind of talked about the prophets already. The Hebrew word for that is the, the um, uh, Navi'im. And to this, you add the writings. That's what they call uh, the Ketuvim. Now, collectively, if you were to look it up, I was trying to find um, the, the words. Um, the Hebrew Bible often refers to these three sections, the Torah, the Navi'im, and the Ketuvim, as the Tanakh. So that, those collective sections are called the tonic. So then you split out Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. They were actually viewed as comprising the former prophets and are included in the works of the prophets. And then Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Nazareth, Nehemiah, uh, to Ezra, or Nehemiah to Ezra, I should say, and Chronicles are in the third part of the Hebrew Bible called the writings. So if you split it out, you've got the law, the Torah, the prophets, and then the writings. That's kind of the sections of the Old Testament. Now, a few differences between the Hebrew Bible and the Bible as we know it today. The Hebrew Bible actually ends with Chronicles rather than Malachi. And also of note, the Hebrew canon numbers 24 books as compared to the 39 that we have recognized as um, uh, the Old Testament. So the 12 minor prophets are collected in the Hebrew Bible as actually one book. So that's one big difference. And then what they do with 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, instead of splitting those up into two volumes, they say that because they tell a continuous story, that they loop those and condense those into single volumes. And so if you do that, you then number 24 books in the Hebrew canon as opposed to the 39 that we have today. But the important thing is you've got those splits of the law, 
the prophets and the writings, and that's kind of how the Hebrew Bible was split and how Christ knew it. Unfortunately, the exact history of how each individual book was viewed as canonical in some ways and aspects we, we really don't know, and it's actually fairly complicated. But what we do know is that by Jesus' time, that these books were recognized in the Old Testament that we have as the Old Testament that Christ used, now in a different form, as I said, um, different, uh, different order, but it was believed and regarded as the mouth of God. So that's the important thing to take away from the Old Testament canon, is that by the time of Christ, it was recognized as authoritative in the um, books as we know it today. So clearly, though, I think we have to talk about how Jesus viewed the Old Testament because it uh, impacts our ability to find authority in the Old Testament. And certainly, Jesus clearly shared the view that the Old Testament was divinely inspired, it was fully authoritative, and it was finally authoritative. So he was very clear on that in multiple sections, but I think one of the grandest sections of, of Christ actually referring back to the Old Testament and believing in its authority was in Matthew, John, and Mark. So we'll pull up a couple verses just to see. I'll read the first one, but if you want to write them down or if you want to go to them, Matthew 6, 26, excuse me, Matthew 26, 24. And so this uh, certainly... Um, where he says, and I'll back up to 23. Um, actually, I'll read 20 through 24 so you can see. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, after one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the, that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would not have been better for that man if he had not been born. So, obviously, he refers back to as it is written. So, that was authoritative. John 13, 18. Here's another example. And this is after Christ had washed the disciples' feet. I'll back up to 17. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Again, the scripture will be fulfilled. And so he's referring back to the Old Testament as an authoritative body. Mark 14, 27. Mark 14, 27. This is where Jesus is foretelling of Peter's denial. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So again, I, I'm going to list two others. We don't have to read them. But, you know, John 15, 25 and Matthew 26, 54. These are all examples of Jesus referring back to the Old Testament as an authoritative body of Scripture. And finally, I think in Luke 22 or 24, 44 through 45, this is the famed um, encounter of, um, on the Emmaus Road. And when the risen Christ met the two disciples, he reminded them of the words of Moses and all of the prophets. So again, this is just 
several of the countless times that Christ refers back to the Old Testament and refers to it as both an authoritative, divinely inspired, fully um, authoritative body of Scripture. So that's the Old Testament. Questions, comments, any insight? That's kind of the Old Testament as we know it. Uh, those sections and then clearly uh, referred to in the New Testament as an authoritative body. So the book of the law versus the book of the covenant, which are both mentioned in those scriptures, do we have a clear understanding of what those two are? I think they were one and the same in these scriptures. I think the book of the law and the book of the covenant was referred to together um, in those scriptures. Because if you go back to that, I think he... There's some folks who look at that that the book of the covenant was from Genesis 1-1 through uh, Exodus 24. So mm-hmm. from the middle of Exodus 24 and then from the middle of Exodus 24 through uh, Deuteronomy is the book of the law. And we, the book of the covenant was conditional mm-hmm. with our and we broke that because that was the marriage of God to Israel. Right. And when that broke, Moses had to write down the book of the law mm-hmm. and all of the things that, that drive us towards Christ. I believe that's right, but I'm curious if anybody else has insight into it. I think that's right, actually. Deuteronomy 31. 9-13. All of it being within the Torah. Right. But not all of the Torah. When Paul talks about the law, he talks about the book of the law, not all of the Torah. Versus grades. And things that we couldn't keep that drive us to despair, that drive us towards Christ. No, that's true. I think that's, I think that's the appropriate division, that it would be up into Exodus for that. Um, it, I think they were, they were used interchangeably, but I think that's probably the, the appropriate division, Dave. I think somewhere in there, yeah. I don't know if he actually said the difference in here. Beth, did you have something to? Um, are there theories of how, get, did it just pass down from Moses' time to Jesus' time? Like, are there theories of how it stayed the Torah? Yeah, I, I think those first five books were collectively known as the Torah, mm-hmm. and that's what was considered that body. Those first five were considered throughout that time as the Torah. So um, you, you look at Exodus 24, mm-hmm. um, and 24 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to hear the people, you know, and he tells everybody all that stuff. And then in 12, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there and I will give you the tablets of stone which the law and the commandment which I will you will I have written for their instruction that's the point where the book of the law begins okay because prior to that it wasn't written down yeah I think that's the more appropriate granular division because even in this little text or in this book here and I think again to your point the book of the covenant Exodus 24-7 um, or the book of the law, Deuteronomy 29. So I guess he uses it more interchangeably within the body of this as he's describing it, but I think that's probably the more granular division, that it's 
that's first the book of the law or the book of the covenant, yeah. and then obviously they can't keep it, and so it becomes the book of the law. Yeah, I know we're chasing a rabbit here, but I was always hung up in it. Mm-hmm. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a good point. It's a good point. And Beth, to your point, um, it, it those first five books, the Torah. I was going to see if there was. Um, well, just the Old Testament in general. Like we know that Jesus, since time, it was established as authoritative. But I have theories of how it came, how it was passed on. Was it just, um, like? the priests or whatever, the keeping, keeping the book pure and true to what, what Moses wrote down? Like, how yeah. did it come to be? <laughs> are there theories for how it was written down in Moses' time and then the time to Jesus' time? Like how it was kept yeah. um, as those five books over time? No, the whole Old Testament. Like he refers to the whole Old Testament. Well, I think those divisions that we talked about were how the Hebrew um, faith grouped the Old Testament together and kept them in that grouping. So the first five books were collectively called the Torah, were the Torah at the time. The prophets were the the books of the prophets. The writings were the books of the writings. And so that's how it was passed down through the Israel faith as the the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, so, so collectively what they called them and how we split them up is what they were known as um, in Jesus' time. The books of the law, well, not, not, not in that sense, but the books of the Torah, the books of the prophets, the scroll, or the scrolls, I should say, because most of these were scrolls yeah. at that time. And, and in fact, as, as Sheldon pointed out last week, we found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we got lots of, um, uh, of those copies of those, some of the oldest in the world, um, that actually had copies, full copies of much of the Old Testament. Yeah, okay. So, all right, good questions. So we can move to the New Testament. So the first thing I'm going to do with the New Testament, I know many of you were here, but I want to recap the discussion very briefly that we had last week on textual criticism because I think it's one of the oppositions to whether or not we have the true original scriptures. And it's, it's one of the many things that, that people would say, Bart Ehrman being one who was at my alma mater of uh, UNC Chapel Hill and teaches that there are, um, he's a, a proponent of the textual criticism theory by saying that because there's so many um, scribal errors and issues with the documents and manuscripts of the New Testament that are we really even certain that we have the original scriptures anyways? Even though we say we know the order and how they were brought together, do we really even have the original words? And so that's really what the um, challenge of textual criticism is, that the New Testament manuscripts are riddled with so many errors and mistakes that there's no certainty uh, about the words of the original authors. Um, and so... Michael Kruger has four primary theses around that. I'm just going to recap them quickly because I think it adds to the foundation of our discussion. But the first is that we have good reason to think that the original text is preserved in the original tradition because we have over 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek alone. But if you add to Latin, um, we have over 10,000 copies and we possess thousands more in the other languages like Syriac, Coptic, Gothic, etc., so that's number one is we have um, good reason to think the original text is preserved because we have a tremendous amount of manuscripts that we can compare them to. The second is the majority of the scribal changes are minor and insignificant. Um, run-of-the-mill scribal slips, a little 
misspelling, a little changes of commas and colons, etc. Things that would be anticipated in any document of antiquity, not just the New Testament alone. And then the more copies that we have, the more chances for errors. So just because there's thousands upon thousands of errors doesn't necessarily mean that they're just riddled with so many errors they can't be authoritative. It's because we have thousands of copies as well. So that amplifies with the number of copies. The number of errors then increase. The small portion of the variations that are significant, we can determine the uh, with a reasonable amount of certainty what's in the original text. And one of those common uh, variants that we talked about last week was in 1 John 5, 7-8, because it talks about in the King James that was brought from a particular Latin manuscript. It adds in a variant that's not part of what we see in the NIV or the ESV, etc. And so... Of the thousands of manuscripts that we have, only eight contain that particular variant that's in the King James. And so it's not attested by a lot of the ancient Greek fathers. It's absent from a lot of early versions. And so therefore, by the body of comparison to the documents, we can determine that that probably wasn't in the original text. So that's one variant. But the take-home there is that of the variants that may be considered quote-unquote significant, with our methodologies, we can determine with a reasonable degree of certainty what's really in the original text. And then finally, the remaining number of these unresolved variants, we don't really know um, what was actually said in the, uh, in the original text. It doesn't impact the overall teaching of the New Testament. The entire story of the New Testament is considered um, not impacted by those particular variants. So that's textual criticism in a nutshell, and that does impact particularly, I mean, you've got things like the lost gospels, um, and a lot of things can be applied to textual criticism, but looking through the body of the New Testament as we have it, you've got like the Gospel of Thomas, and these lost gospels that have arisen, and people have said, oh, should that really have been part of the New Testament? Is that really, um, should we be listening to that? Should we be looking at that? The Gnostic gospels, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things have arisen over time. So how do we know what's truly in the New Testament? Uh, we'll talk through some of that. But that's one of the arguments that, that, that scholars and uh, individuals that are in opposition to it may say, well, with textual criticism, we don't even know what's truly in the New Testament to begin with. Hopefully that gives some context to that discussion. So thinking of the New Testament canon, we do have to refer to historical documents and extra-biblical sources to understand the development of the canon. So the canon as we know it today, the 27 books that were contained in the New Testament, they were codified in an official list. Now, it wasn't like that they were, you know, hand-raised and everything, but they were codified at the councils of Carthage in 393 and Hippo in 397. So we do have, by the 200s to the 400s, that's the time frame by which the, the New Testament, as we know it today, was in its form, was in its, um, from Matthew to Revelation, it was in its form. Now, Several of the books were debated at certain councils and things like that. So what I said at the beginning, there is some truth to it. It was There was some debate over time with early church fathers, what should be and should not be in the New Testament canon. But by the councils of Carthage and Hippo, we do have that body that we know it as it is today. But some important notes here, and I think it applies to a little bit from the Old Testament, but really in the New Testament, 
Most of these texts were recognized and utilized already in public worship as divinely inspired. Before we ever said, hey, where's the book of the New Testament, what's contained within it, we have these bodies of text being used in an authoritative fashion in public worship and in, um, in, in services. It also you know, helps to think of how New Testament authors refer to other New Testament authors. And I think this is probably the third week that we've used this particular verse, but it just solidifies that point. In 2 Peter 3, um, 15-16, Peter's talking about Paul's letters. And in this scripture, he says, And to count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to them, as he does in all his letters... When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And he's referring back to Paul here. So again, the New Testament authors refer to other New Testament authors um, and their works as scripture. And so you see that on many occasions in the New Testament. But it's also important to note that the early church fathers also recognized these texts. So we're talking people like Tertullian and Athanasius, so early, early church fathers. Tertullian had quoted from nearly 23 of the 27 texts in the New Testament by the late 2nd and 3rd centuries. So by that time, they were already recognized, again, as authoritative by the early church fathers, by early church um, ministers in public worship settings. Um, So they were widely utilized, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, By ancient writers, they were used to judge views, they were used to judge controversies, and they were treated as authoritative really long before they were canonized into the form that we see today. But I think importantly, too, Athanasius is if you're going to pin somebody down to say, um, you know, who actually wrote the the canon out um, or who recognized the canon first, that was probably Athanasius. And so he wrote a letter to his churches every year on Easter. It was called the Festal Letter. And in his Festal Letter, in 367 AD, that he addressed to his churches, it lists the same 27 books of the New Testament that we hold today. So by that point in 367, that's probably before they were codified at the councils later on in that century, that was the first time that someone had put pen to paper, so to speak, or I don't know, scroll to quill or whatever, you know, quill to scroll, whatever it was at that point, to say um, these are the 27 books of the New Testament. And actually, I thought it was interesting. I found a portion of the letter, so I thought it would be cool to to read that. Um, And uh, F.F. Bruce, who has written several commentaries, if anyone's seen the commentaries by F.F. Bruce, he was widely known as an important scholar. um, And the translation of this letter was the work of F.F. Bruce, so giving credit where credit's due. Athanasius first says, Inasmuch as some have taken in hand to draw up from themselves an arrangement of the so-called apocryphal books and to intersperse them with the divinely inspired scripture concerning which we have been fully persuaded, even as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to, to the fathers, it has seemed good to me also having been stimulated thereto by true brethren to set forth the order of books which are included in the canon and have been delivered to us with the accreditation that they are divine. So he's saying at this point too, now thinking back to what he said at the beginning, the apocryphal text, 
These are the books between the Old and the New Testament that you sometimes see in some scriptures. The Catholic Bible includes the apocryphal works in between the Old and the New Testament. And these were the works that the early church fathers, as he's referring to, some say that they were divinely inspired, but the early church fathers said, we don't have the certainty, we don't have the, they don't have the same weight and caliber and divine inspiration that the other ones do, and so we are not going to include those. That's part of what he's saying here. But he said at the end, um, to set forth the order of books which are included in the canon have been delivered to us with accreditation that they are divine. So then he goes on to list the Old Testament books and he lists the New Testament books. And then he said at the end of his letter, let no one add to these or take anything from them. No mention is to be made of the apocryphal works. They are the invention of heretics who write according to their own will and gratuitously assign and add to them dates so that, offering them as ancient writings, they may have an excuse for leading the simple astray. Pretty powerful words. So right? <laughs> Athanasius, I mean the Athanasian Creed is where you go through the, the Trinity. Right. So prior to that, he's got, he's put this together. Is it also the case that the apocryphal writings were, they were not from disciples, maybe other than St. Thomas, mm -hmm. or Thomas, all the others were not part of uh, the Twelve. Yeah, and that's so what... That, that, that was a, the first discreditation was they did not have eyewitness accounts based on them being apostles. That's exactly right. Most of the works of the New Testament were written by apostles or written by close um, counterparts and friends of the apostles. And so that's one of the... One of the um, metrics by which books are evaluated for um, acceptance into the canon was, are they divinely inspired? Because to be divinely inspired, they would have had to have been from one of the apostles. So this is something that Athanasius said, as you said, um, the other apocryphal writings, they weren't counted as written by apostles, not divinely inspired, and that was one of the, the core tenets. That's what I was looking for earlier. One of the core tenets was that it had to be written by a disciple uh, or a close counterpart to be considered as a divine inspired work. I think that's why I would imagine Paul puts so much into the defense of why he is writing from a divinely inspired perspective because he wasn't one of the apostles. And I, I think later, so. I think those are texts that we often sort of glaze over when we're reading the scriptures because we want the content on justification and application and sanctification. But what we glaze over in the New Testament are all those times that they start talking authoritatively about themselves and how they're writing from a divine inspiration. And they're doing that because they know that these works over time will then, I don't think they knew how, but they knew that these works over time were going to be utilized by the bodies of the churches. And it, it, it's, 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 it's incredible to think. I think the way that Derek Thomas says it in this little book, um, what did he say in here um, about the New Testament uh, authors? Um, but what about the New Testament canon? Would John, Matthew, Paul be astonished that they knew their writings were still being read in churches today? They might be astonished that their writings were printed in books and are now available in digital format. So, I mean, it, it's just with the way they actually carried writing it and saying and putting that effort into it in the New Testament, it's it's um, it's pretty amazing that um, that it's carries that much weight and has uh, succeeded over over time. So, 
as we're working into our close, um, one thing that we can note from the early Christian writers is they place the text into four broad categories. This is from an essay from Mike Horton, and I think this goes to, to exactly what you were saying about being divinely inspired by written by a disciple. They place it into four broad categories. Canonical, widely accepted, spurious, or heretical. So those are the four broad categories. And the classification had to do with the nature of the text rather than with the authority of the church. That's an important thing. They were looking at the text themselves rather than the church being authoritative and saying this, not this, this, not this. It was the nature of the text. So they used this historical method in a way, the same method that we would use today to say is the book of the Gospel of Thomas considered a biblical authoritative document. It's the same method we would use today by comparing the content the theology to what we hold true as the scriptures, comparing it that, they were looking at the nature of the text rather than the authority of the church. And again, criteria that they used were well-attested apostolic authorship, certification of that, wide acceptance and use of scripture already in practice. So we talked about that. If it's used widely already in public services and in worship settings, then it could be considered as a criteria and then consistency of the content, as I just said, comparing it to other already accepted documents. So what's truly important here is the church was recognizing, I think this is also a key take on point, it was recognizing not creating the canon. It was recognizing those body of scriptures considered authoritative, and whatever they ended up being, that was the canon. It wasn't like they set out to say, okay, you know, X, Y, Z, it was like we're evaluating every body of document and considering whether or not it's authoritative and that's what comprised the canon. As Mike Horton says, the leaders of the ancient church were engaged in historical criticism, determining which books were canonical, not, in, uh, not endowing them with canonical authority. They were determining which ones were canonical, but they weren't endowing them with that authority. They could look at these widely works, um, one of those being the Shepherds of, of Hermas. That was a widely accepted work. It was widely utilized, but it didn't have adequate evidence of apostolic origin, and therefore it didn't belong to the apostolic writings, and therefore it couldn't be considered canonical. That's one of them. And that's actually Athanasius. That, that's one example that he utilized. He didn't recognize the Shepherds of Hermas because it wasn't divinely inspired, authored by apostles, so therefore, does it meet that criteria to fit into our canon? So as I close, multiple occasions in the New Testament where the authors refer to the writings of Scripture, they refer to them as authoritative, we can be confident. As it says in 2 Timothy, as all Scripture is divinely inspired, God-breathed, useful for reproof, for teaching, the entire body of Scripture is the canon as God intended it. And I really, really like this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. I think it's a perfect closing quote. He Do says, <laughs> I could try. <laughs> the apostles did not know how long it would be until Christ returned, but they were very conscious that God was speaking through them. They believed what they were writing carried his authority. They knew that a major part of their commission was to give God's word to the world until the return of Christ. The logic of the Great Commission virtually required them to write the New Testament. Without it, 
the gospel might have well been totally corrupted within a couple of generations. How otherwise could the gospel have reached the ends of the earth and continue to do so to the end of the age? So I think if you step back and look at it, you know, this is a very sort of technical discussion on how the Old Testament came and how the New Testament came. But at the end of the day, it was divinely inspired by God's inspiration. These were the scriptures by these human hands that were put together to tell the story of redemption from the beginning to the end. And it plays out in a beautiful web throughout from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And the debate and the concerns and other books and other things, other writings throughout centuries could stand up and say, well, should, should it be in the Scripture? Should it not be in the Scripture? Throughout the time, we have the 66 books of the Bible, and it tells that story from the beginning to end. And as Sinclair Ferguson said, how otherwise could the gospel have reached the ends of the earth and continue to do so to the end of the age if it wasn't written by those individuals, divinely inspired, collected into what we know it as the canon, and passed on? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing that, you know, over thousands of years of criticism and debate and so many individuals saying, is it authoritative? Is it true? Is it written in the way it originally was? How should these books be included? We have a book that's standing the test of time, and it's thanks to the divine providence of God, but the human hands that wrote it as inspired um, by, by God. It's pretty impressive. You know, completely making this up. I'm, but I'm wondering. So here's these guys, you know, they're in prison, they're fishing, they're doing whatever. Christ is, has been resurrected, and they're writing it down this book, or they're writing uh, to a church, in Paul's case. I've got to think, in their minds, they, they didn't see it as us reading it. Right. They were thinking about those specific individuals yeah. in that church, or the people that they were writing to, saying, I've got to write this down. I've got to make sure this is right. God, help me. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I'm accurate to these six people I know. Mm -hmm. And their brothers and sisters. It's really important that they hear this word. Right. And so their perspective was not myopic, but very focused on the time they lived in, the people they were thinking of, the church in Ephesus, or whatever it was. And that, to me, says that's truly inspired. Right. To see that it went beyond that to the next church, because they said, well, hey, I know a guy, these guys over in Colossia. They need to see this letter, too. And then it just starts to spread, and all of a sudden it's 50 years, 100, two millennia later. We're still using the same writings. To me, what could be more evidence of something being divinely inspired than that? Yep. It's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible. I was trying to see. I, th I thought Derek Thomas said something about that. Um, I think he just, he just really talked about what the role of the New Testament apostle is, but I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine that, though. Like, writing, writing from a place of um, prison or a, pra a place of... Um, of uh, um, persecution like that. Well, just thinking far enough out, like Sheldon, 
Have you ever written anything? You ever done anything that you thought would last two thousand years? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, we don't think that way. I'm sure they weren't either. No, well, that, that, that's the <laughs> point. That, that's his point. That the, yeah. Other well, than the plastic bottles, I think they're going to be around for a thousand years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we can't even in the modern day. Often in books, you see it irritates me. I see misspelled words mm -hmm. or. Yeah improper grammar and I think what is wrong with us today right <laughs> well, the intentionality was so different technology, <laughs> right? we weren't able to manipulate words so easily that we can now and right computers and stuff they have to be just so precise yeah um, I mean I think that's that that's that's the whole issue with textual criticism is is you know it's been passed down and copied by so many different people how can it truly be authentic and that's why those those basic four points were to try to combat that but it's it has to be written with a different intentionality i mean like you said it's not myopic but it's a very focused intention at that point but it was being divinely um woven together by god that every one of those specific instances for that very specific purpose would tell the story that we needed to tell 2,000 years later. It's the clarity of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. There's, there's clear evidence that that was, for that point in time, to mm -hmm. be used for the rest of history. Mm -hmm. But it, when they're writing it, I'm sure they just had this clear uh, epiphany. Mm -hmm. This is what I have to write to these people. Mm -hmm. And then the Holy Spirit gets to use it for, for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, no, it's I, good. Do I teach next week? I'll have to look. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll pray for us and we can, we, can, we can close. Father, thank you for this discussion. Thank you for the clarity of Scripture and its impact that we can read it from beginning to end and see your love for us, see your love for your people, and the fact that the only thing we can cling to is our hope in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and how the scriptures tell us that story from beginning to end. Father, we thank you for the men that wrote and the times that they wrote, focused and for a specific purpose, but you were divinely putting it together for a document that we could hold to and cling to and know as authoritative and be instructive for our life and that we can rest in the promises that are contained within its scriptures. Um, Father, just be with uh, Ryan as he delivers a message today and give our hearts and ears receptivity to what he's saying and to learn so we can learn more about you. And thank you for this discussion for this group of people and uh, may it be fruitful to uh, be applied to our lives uh, day in and day out. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.